Welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Today, we're having a look at the director, Terence Young, the first of the Bond directors, and some would say uh, the Bond director most responsible for giving the secret agent his style. And joining me, of course, my two co-hosts from Canada, Jeff Chapman and Joshua Dwight Gordon-Taylor, otherwise known as the BFG. How are you gentlemen doing today? The Holy Trinity is reunited. Mm, Yes, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Superman. And you can figure out who those are later on. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm Uh, clearly Wonder Woman, clearly. Well, I was going to say, Josh doesn't drive, but he can fly an invisible plane, so there's your clue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I I drive around in my invisible car all the time, in my invisible plane. Yeah. (laughs) And then they can make fun of your appearance, because it's (laughs) (laughs) see-through. I feel Uh, feel like I'm on a different podcast right now. Just uh, clearing the cobwebs out from the past couple of weeks, I guess. Yeah, and it has been a while since we've been together. We haven't been together to record a show since we did our Eoners list episode, yeah, right. <laughs> which was the end of season one. It was fun. Yeah, and then guys, we had our uh, little car, uh, car chase yeah. episode a week or two ago, just me and you, though. Yeah, sans Jeff. But guys, a lot's changed since the three of us been together. Uh, let's just do a little yeah. check-in, shall we? Uh, with in, in this climate of self-isolation and quarantine, how's everybody doing there? Are we Are we keeping the wolf from the door? Yeah, the wolf is from the door. Hannibal's uh, well, at the gates, but we're not letting him in. I'll be honest, my wolf is pretty close to the door, mm-hmm. but he's okay. Now, Jeff, your good lady's working, isn't she, frontline in the nursing homes? Oh, very much so. And how's she getting on with things? Uh, it, it, well, I mean, to be honest, her work is stressful on a good day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's getting more stressful, however... Um, fingers crossed. Um, she, there's no outbreaks in her location, and they're doing the best they can. So so far so good, but it is pretty hectic, and it's it it, it, it I mean it is scary and it is uh, it is tense. So mm-hmm. uh, she's got a tough job, but she's doing it she's doing it well, and so far everything seems to be quote unquote okay at her location. Good. And Josh, you've well, just returned to work, good. haven't you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a, a person testing positive, as I mentioned on our previous show. Uh, so all, all, the whole place was shut down and mm-hmm. certain people were sent into quarantine. And I was, I've been out of quarantine for about a week now. Right. Uh, so I'm, I just got back to work during this week and it's nonstop calls. Yeah, I bet. But yeah. Everyone wears a mask everywhere. There's uh-huh. like tape on the floor that indicates six spaces between each person. Like, uh, taking pretty hard precautions. Good. Well, that's good to hear. And I know a lot of our listeners are going to be in similar situations with work or stay at home or looking after loved ones. So uh, we ho- hope hope that this episode goes some small way in contributing to, you know, just, just a bit a bit of distraction, a bit of entertainment, and maybe even a bit of info learning. Because we got, I think we got a great topic today. We're going to look at Terrence Young. Well, I was going to say... Probably my uh, favorite Bond director, too. I'd also like to say that, uh, you know, in this, in this, you know, these interesting times that we have a lot of people have more time on their hands so if you don't have time to listen to a podcast that's your own fault (laughs) yeah Yeah, readjust your priorities look if you can watch if you can watch all of netflix and comment on tiger king and how good it is which it's not i stopped halfway through the first episode yeah i don't know Uh, what's going on with that jeff Jeff, can you explain that show to me because my wife was kind of showing some interest in it but i I don't know if i want to go there do i or don't don't no you don't and it's one of those it's like one of those like uh, you know, it's like a, you're rubbernecking in an accident. Like, I just like mm. one, like, I mean, Rachel is a big animal lover and we like watching those like animal, you know, documentaries with, you know, Richard Attenborough, somebody with a really nice British David Attenborough. Sorry. I apologize. Well, I, I mean, was, yeah. hey, Sir Richard might have done a, uh, a documentary too. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he did. 
spurred no expense. Anyways, mm-hmm. it it's just That's it's really sad to see these like white trash people that just you know it looks like they just breed tigers and all these animals in captivity for money and then there's also like these like they tried to like you know kill people well, someone was killed for like a money like a, a hit mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff it's just it's just like i don't want to I, I don't feel like watching it i don't feel like spending my time watching this garbage mm-hmm. i would prefer to watch a documentary on like you know like tigers about the, ba- the battle of arnhem for example well it which i did um <laughs> but anyway so i tried to watch it because everyone and their dog including mine was trying to watch Tiger King, and I'm just like I can't do it. Like we we both decided we're like you know what no, it's leaving a bad taste in my mouth, and that wasn't just like the uh, you know the really stale Dr Pepper that I was sipping at the time. So <laughs> I just decided right. no, there's other things to watch. Anyways, that's I gave I just gave Tiger King way too much time. All right, <laughs> well hey, listen, we gave uh... Tiger King too much time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my my time I I didn't do much as reading as I wanted to do. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean I've been. For another podcast, I've been reading. Uh, I read the Big Sleep and also a biography of oh, Raymond Chandler. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, I binge. I think I probably. And of course, I always had like The Office going on in the background on Netflix mm-hmm. all the time. Solid. I watched the entirety of Parks and Recreation, which I never. Wow. Watched. I finally had a chance nice. to finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, where did we stop on that? Just so I know. So if oh, I wanted to like start season, it up. That was season four, like last, uh, like a couple years ago. Oh no, no, that was a. It was quite a few years ago. But what, yeah. like. And how many seasons do they have? Seven. So okay, 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 cool. Yeah. cool. Sorry. Yeah. yeah the last couple of seasons for me, nah, not not that great really. Uh, Sarah wanted to watch it, and I did. I, I never really yeah. got super excited about it. I liked some of the characters a lot, and others I really didn't care much for. Yeah. And so I, I almost felt myself tuning out when we went to that part of the story. You know. Yeah, and I, I kind of see what you mean. Like I found, I still find I enjoyed The Office a lot more. Uh, I guess I, I, I like some of the characters a bit mm. more, but uh, overall it was a fun show. Oh yeah. I also yeah. Start, I also started binging the Man in the High Castle, Philip K. Dick's uh, okay, yeah. s- story about you know w- w- what if the Axis powers won. Right. Um, Jeff recommended this show uh, Babylon Berlin on Netflix. Oh yeah. Yeah, I remember it's, him it's, talking it's, about that. Oh yeah. It's, yeah, like, it's, like, a it's, like, a, it's like it's basically like a Chandler-esque kind of like story set in uh, Berlin, 1929. 1929. Cool. I wholly recommend it. It's really good. Oh, and yeah. It's it really good. layers and kind of slowly builds up how – what I like about it is that it doesn't throw, like, you know, the Nazis in your face. Yeah, it's no, slowly, not at all. It's a it slow slowly, burn. It slowly inserts yeah. them into the story yeah. and you see progressively cool. how they come, they come out of the woodwork. So Because I, that's when I was like, when are they going to mention them? And, like, and how are they going to mention them? Because that, to me, would have – that it's kind of like it would have spoiled it. It's like when you're, you're baking, not that I bake, but if, you know, it, doing a certain – uh, if you add, you know, an ingredient too quickly, or if you're not stirring it fast enough, it ruins the whole thing. So mm-hmm. I feel like, in these kind of shows, if like you just immediately go, it's Nazi Germany, or like you just, it would just spoil it. But mm-hmm. it just slowly explain how, you know, at yeah. this time the Nazis were around, but it didn't, it didn't spoil, it didn't do anything to the plot. It just sort of added to it, which was good. And yeah, and, you literally it, don't see like the SA you know, or the. Uh, the, like the SA until like the sec the storm tro- the stormtroops you know the brown shirts you yeah. don't see them until like season two right so yeah. very cool but, well I, I haven't seen anyways, that good but I, I do know yeah. that it it comes uh, at your recommendation I remember oh, making note of really that. good well I'm glad that you guys gave me the inside scoop on Tiger uh, the Tiger oh, Man or whatever no, it's yeah, that was a relevant relevant point that we just had to make today you know because I think it really calls into <laughs> and bringing it back you know like why can't they just use like the fake tigers that they had an octopus to scare Roger Moore out of the bushes, right? <laughs> or, or the real sharks in Thunderball. 
There Looking real go. sharks and thunderball. Thank you, Terrence yeah, Young. Yeah, yeah. Bring well, it yes. back. Bring it back. Bring it back. You know, if, you, if you disagree with Jeff's um, Jeff's view of Tiger King, yeah. If you if you disagree, then send your complaints to bondbynumbers yeah, at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about Tiger King on Netflix, um, which has nothing to do with the show. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. Yeah. But we but, but we we will comment. We can't necessarily say that we'll watch it so that we can give you a a proper response to your comment, but <laughs> we'll make something up what we think it's about. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And spe- speaking of writing in, um, uh, thanks go out to those of you who've already been in touch regarding the uh, the post we put out there on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter a while back um, about an upcoming episode where we want to tell your stories. We want to tell our listeners stories of how they got into Bond, whether it was a family member that kind of got them in or whether it was a pal or whether they just were scanning the channels at night. Whatever your stories are, we're trying to collect them so that we can have kind of like a mailbag, listener mail, uh, Bond story, entry point, event horizon, call it whatever the hell you want. <laughs> we don't really have a title for it yet, but we're, we're really looking forward to just kind of having a, a, a read through and a sharing of the um, the things you guys are, are sending into us. So we've got a couple really good ones and a couple of really small ones and we've got a nice collection but we're looking to build on that so if you've got yeah, a story if you got a story just just send us an email at bond by numbers three at gmail.com or send us a message to the facebook page or or just get in touch however and let us know what your starting point was for james bond because we're all coming from different places different influences and we want to share that and celebrate that on the show for an upcoming episode so yeah a couple more weeks i think we'll keep that open and then uh maybe probably the middle of may or so we'll, we'll uh, try to compile all these great stories we're getting in and and put them into some sort of a format hey eh? that's the plan anyways yeah that's Sounds the plan great. but today gents we're here to talk about terrence young and we decided that for season two we wanted in addition to some other ideas we've got going on we, we want to do a little feature on each of the directors not necessarily in chronological order and not necessarily for the purposes of ranking the best or the worst or nothing like that but just to really shine a little bit more light on the careers of these individuals the influence that they had not just within the Bond canon, but, you know, out with perhaps, if that's appropriate, and, and just talk a little bit about the uh, the men behind the camera. Yeah, besides Ian Fleming, if there's any person that established the iconic, I guess, uh, aesthetic of James Bond, that was definitely Terrence Young. Oh, I thought you were going to say Barry Nelson. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was absolutely iconic playing Mr. <laughs> Jimmy Bonds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Jimmy uh, Bond. Yeah. Apologies go out to Barry Nelson's family if they happen to be listening. Eh. <laughs> yeah yes but you're right we're here to talk about terrence young so really what we're going to do the i think the the format is we're just going to give a little biographical information a bit a bit on his career but on his influence and then we're going to just sort of talk about his films what we liked about them and uh, by all means let us know what you think about terrence young at or the show indeed when when we're all wrapped up here in in a wee little while so gents uh, first impressions terrence young He's definitely a son of the British Empire. I mean, this is this, yeah. you know, like he, he's part of that that late colonial history of the British Empire, mm-hmm. uh, and someone who basically went from like serving it for his country to yeah. that fashion, getting into the film industry in that way, like a lot of British actors did, and directors and other uh, crew, crewmen did yep. and it, during World War II. Uh, so we see all those kind of those guys all kind of bleed out into the 1950s doing all these small productions and building their way up until they get connected with good producers, yeah, i.e. Right. Terrence Young, uh, you know, joining up early with, with uh, Cubby Brockman mm-hmm. and then eventually making his way to the Bond series. Yeah, he did. He did 
uh, link up with uh, Cubby rather early, but uh, of course he he was working in the film industry before that. I'll just yes. uh, share a little bit here and chip in whenever you guys want, okay? Uh, so it doesn't get too too sort of lesson oriented. But this <laughs> some of the stuff I found really interesting. Uh, born the twentieth of June, nineteen fifteen, in Shanghai, to a police commissioner of Shanghai, he oh. died on the seventh of September, nineteen ninety four. Yeah, a con, I believe. Hmm. Cote d'Azur, I think. Yeah, he was, yeah, the so, south of France for sure. So he was at a rather nice spot uh, to kick it. It's, <laughs> yeah, a think, to, it's a good way to go. He probably saw some good films. I think he had houses everywhere. You know, I think he had, like, throughout his life anyway, I think he enjoyed traveling and enjoyed the jet set, didn't he? Our well, let's young. just say if he, oh, had, I, I, he was timesharing in Nevnavarsog, Russia, he chose <laughs> the right place to timeshare at the time that he passed away. <laughs> he did. He really did. He's like, why uh, Why was I timeshareing now? And he's like, well, at least I chose Cote d'Azur. So, yeah, that's, you know, it's not bad. <laughs> yeah, like if you ever see a picture of like Terrence Young, like any, any of those production stills or any documentaries, like, you know, he's been interviewed, he's always surrounded in luxury somewhere. Like even like the... Uh, like later on in his life, when they filmed those documentaries that were used on the DVDs in the uh, 2000s, yeah. you always see him like at a pool or something like that. He's really comfortable. <laughs> Poolside with Terrence Young. Yeah. Or you see him like in on the set of Thunderball, you know, like uh, sh- 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 shirtless on a yacht with a young like Michael G. Wilson. Oh, right? yeah, like, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, he, uh, I mean, for, for the purposes of our discussion, I think we'll just pick up in the 30s, if that's all right with you, okay? Because it was in the 30s where he, he made this collaboration, his first professional collaboration with Brian Desmond Hurst, who, yes. of course, you guys will know is Northern Ireland's, well, I don't know if he's the greatest, but he's definitely one of the most respected and one of the most uh, heralded uh, filmmakers from that part of the Emerald Isle. That's right. Yeah, he's pretty much where Terrence Young cut his teeth on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he started there as a screenwriter, getting credit for Hearst's film 1939's On the Night of the Fire. Um, right. In the USA, that film was called The Fugitive. In 1940, he did A Call for Arms. Uh, 1941, Dangerous Moonlight. 1942, A Letter from Ulster, all with Hearst. And so he's developed this um, this collaboration with Hearst. And the two of them very, are working really very, well together at this point. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I guess you could say Hearst was sort of like, again, he's an example of someone who uh, got into his filmmaking during the Second World War or just before, right? Yeah. So, so, so some of these films, they sound a lot like military films. So were these like propaganda films, you would say? I think some of them were. Well, no, not not really, not in the broadest, no? uh, maybe in a broad sense, but they were they were broad they sense. were produced for the sake of propaganda. No. 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 Okay. I think a call for arms would probably be the most. You know, the, the the most along those lines. And, of course, yeah. during the time where, I mean, Hearst is like, you know, the voice of North, Northern Ireland, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, mm-hmm. I wonder what his thoughts were about, you know, like south of uh, Ulster. Mm. I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, I, I couldn't tell you, to be honest. I, I didn't look too much into Hearst's life or his political leanings or you know, I just know he was very proud, and I, he 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 never sort of renounced his heritage for the sake of money. He never went chasing glory while putting others down. And I mean, after after Bond, Terence Young, as we're going to see, he he spent a lot of his time back in Europe too. He kind of said goodbye to Hollywood and and uh, and went back yes. to European films. So I think right. the two of them are sort of similar in the sake that they never sold out. You know, they're uh, they never went chasing. Rather, they never went chasing a di- different sort of a life. Yeah, I kind of really feel that, like, you know, Dr. No and From Russia of Love, if, if you, those films have a distinct kind of style to them. And I think post-Goldfinger, I think mm-hmm. you're there. I think the studios wanted to make another Goldfinger. And with Thunderball, Terrence wanted to make another, another like, From Russia of Love or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think he burned out 
of, of, of Hollywood, I think, on that movie. Uh, well, he probably wouldn't have been used to working with so much budget, you know, by the time that film came <laughs> I around. I think you're right, yeah. And, yes. you know, he, here's a guy who's used to control and tightness, and all of a sudden he's yeah. got the producers who, yeah, he might have a good relationship with them, but they're throwing all sorts of money that he never, you know, he, he's used to cutting corners and saving pennies, and now all of a yes. sudden he's got a, a huge uh, leviathan of a picture to make, and... You know, I'm not saying for a second that that didn't work. I'm not, we haven't got the Thunderball yet. We're still in the fucking 30s and 40s here. But yeah, I, I guess yes. what I mean is that yeah, the, yeah. the films on which he cut his teeth were um, they weren't art house, but they were no. they were tighter, they were smaller, they were more conservative, you know, in budget. And and I think that even the first two Bond films that he did have that feeling and that well that reality to them, right? Absolutely. Anyway, 1942, uh, James Mason film, Secret Mission. Uh, now, usually I gift my James Mason impersonation uh, at, at least one point in every episode. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to save that. Aww. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, but that was a film directed by Harold French, and it was a British war film. So you're thinking more along the lines of your propaganda there, at least more directly. Um, the last film that Young was credited as screenwriting before going to war was a Clive Brook picture called On Approval. And even at this younger age, as you say, he's 30, just, just about 30 years old here, he had a reputation among his pals as a cool customer, a ladies' man during his young adult life. And I think that wartime probably only served to strengthen those qualities yeah. of character. Uh, I don't think he came back from war less manly, if I can use that you know, euphemism. <laughs> so I think, guys, if you'll indulge me for a couple of moments, I'd like to draw on the work of two really good writers. Okay, The first writer is Steve Powell, who wrote an article called Terrence Young, The Man Who Would Be Bond. And the other okay. writer, Ben McIntyre, who wrote a book called Agent Zigzag, which was all about the life of MI15's oh. double agent Eddie Chapman. Yeah. And both of these texts really introduced me to some cool information on Young, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention them, and I also think if I didn't mention this information. So I'm just glossing from those texts here, okay? Mm, Sure. Um, So Gloss along. Terrence Young actually worked far more closely with espionage than his war entry line might suggest if you just look him up on Wikipedia, right? He was an intelligence officer attached to the field security section of the Guards Armored Division. And yeah, that's uh, heavy fighting at Normandy. The Irish Guards, right? The Irish Guards, yeah. That's uh, heavy fighting at Normandy and at Arnhem. Uh, The relationship between Eddie Chapman and Young is really quite interesting, though. He and Chapman were friends before the war. Now, this is when, as I just said a moment ago, Young had this reputation as a rather sophisticated gentleman, a fine taste for women, wine, expensive clothes, you know... Chapman, was, on the other hand, he was hand, Bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Chapman, on the other hand, was involved with criminal criminal gangs, and he was an expert safecracker. Okay, so his his name had been through through the procedurals a little bit, you know. <laughs> uh, the two men's paths crossed in London, where the division between high society and the criminal underworld was not always distinct. McIntyre describes the remarkable series of events that followed. Chapman was serving a prison sentence on the Channel Islands when it came under Nazi occupation. He was transferred to a prison in Paris, where he then offered his services to Abwehr German intelligence. Now, after being parachuted into England as a German spy, he immediately contacted MI15, M15, MI5 rather, in the hope of working uh, yeah, he immediately contacted MI5 in the hope of working for them as a double agent. So, <laughs> Young then is contacted by the, this intelligence agent, uh, Laurie Marshall, to meet with his old friend Chapman to build up his morale and sort of see where he is, right? Young Happy to do this, 
And he also provided a character reference for Eddie Chapman at the time, saying that he would actually make a perfect spy. Here's what, here, here's what Terrence Young said about him. Um, when asked with the question, could Chapman be trusted with intelligence work? Young added, was adamant about this. One could give him the most difficult of missions, knowing that he would carry it out and that he would never betray the official who sent him. But it was highly probable that he would, incidentally, rob the official who sent him out. He would then yeah, he would then carry out his mission and return to the official whom he had robbed and say, you know, to report. So in short, I think he could be relied on to do whatever was asked of him while being utterly untrustworthy in almost every other respect. Awesome. Sounds like a spy. But it, yeah, but it turns out that his assessment of Chapman was, was really highly accurate. And, you know, this insight, this experience into the real world of espionage must have influenced his contribution, you know, to the I success of the James Bond films, you know. Well, it, do, do we yeah. know if, if Fleming, uh, Ian Fleming knew uh, Terrence Young at the time? Yeah, uh, their, their meeting is coming up. Okay, I got a bit of information oh, okay. on that. Um, but just as Ian Fleming's experiences about naval intelligence influenced the creation of Bond, Terrence Young's laid some, some mark there on the filmic Bond. Oh, absolutely. And we'll get uh, into that for yeah, sure when yeah. we reach Dr. No. Well, he returned from the war, guys, um, to the Irish Guards, Operation Market Garden. Jeff, I know you'll say something about that in a few minutes, I hope. Um, mm. He returned from war, and he honed the script for Hearst's Theirs is the Glory, all about Operation Market Garden. Now, this film is considered to be the authority on the subject of the Allied operation, and it, it, it's probably a great place here to turn it over to you, Jeff, because you've recently watched that film, haven't you? Uh, I have. I, it, it was actually quite good. And like you were saying that a lot of people say it's sort of the quintessential film on Market Garden. Uh, I'd have to, like, I mean, I haven't watched The Bridge Too Far, which is everyone, like, who, ha mostly it's it's probably the, the most uh, readily available um, sort of Hollywood film that you can find on Market Garden. Yeah, uh, I would agree. And, yeah. and um, Scott, you, you had done a little bit of, you know, research and mentioned you found this one out uh, about that. So then I watched it uh, not that long ago and uh, it, it is very good. And I mean, it's, it's also, I mean, it was done in 1946. So, mm. so the locations Fresh. were still, yeah. I mean, they should like yeah, the bridges still were smoldering. still, yeah, the bridges were still out. Mm. Uh, and, and, um, and they had, you know, they had actors, but it was interesting because it was almost like a documentary slash film where, there was a narration, and it, what was interesting is the narrator in the film was a character, but he was Canadian, but he was working for the BBC, and it was really interesting. And uh, the narration was was really well done, but also they used a lot of really good stock footage of the battle, and um, and and also the characters. It was a lot of good characters. My only thing was that I. I now maybe it's just me, but I had a hard time sort of remembering all the characters and just being like, "Well, which which airborne guy or well, like which can, paratrooper can I ask you a is question, this?" Jeff? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, so, yeah, just because you mentioned about the characters and everything, I was considering because I recently read a book on uh, World War on the on, on the American side of World War Two, mm -hmm. and this is the beginning. It was a, it's a three book series actually. Um, the writer escapes me right now, but it dealt with the first book dealt with like the the campaign in Africa. And one of the paratroopers oh, that yeah. was that took place in that battle was one of his first skirmishes was this guy named Johnny Frost. Now, mm -hmm. in the British too far, he's famously portrayed by Anthony Hopkins. Right. So, and and I believe he was at Arnhem Bridge. He he served in Market Garden. Uh, so yes. I'm wondering, did the documentary talk about Johnny Frost at all? Uh, no, I, they didn't mention Frost. Uh, it, it's like, 
they didn't mention Frost um, by name. Actually, but, uh, I, I think he might have been involved with New Megan Bridge. Maybe it was maybe it was an Arnhem, but I know that was part of the Market Garden Bridge spell, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they, they they did mention. I mean, they they mentioned it all, right? But I mean, yes. the majority of this 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 film wasn't the whole, like it. it they, what was interesting is it went day by day, like you were like day one this happened, day two, and then they and then they would they would show each day and how progressively bad it got. The majority of the film though was about the about about the airborne. Mm-hmm. And mostly about the British Airborne. So I mean, they did talk about the the Polish paratroopers. They did talk oh, about God. the tanks. <laughs> yeah, um, but the majority of it was the British uh, the British Airborne troops. Okay. Very good. Um, but uh, it, it's a very very good film. Uh, I, I must say. Uh, now, maybe you guys, if you if you when you watch it or if you have watched it, you can say that maybe you can. Uh, there's a there is a hint of, of Terrence Young writing in there. I didn't catch anything uh, on my viewing of it. But anyone who likes. Um, documentaries or I would almost say it's almost like a I don't want to say it's a docudrama but um it's a it's a very very well done film especially for being contemporary at the time being only like maybe 12 months or less from you know well if you want to go from when it was done so that would be the 17th of September 1944 which was the first day of of Operation Market Garden it's only like maybe two years at the most so it's very fresh I wonder uh, if that's why some people regard it as being that sort of quintessential film, you know, because it hasn't been so. romanticized no, by, by any Hollywood. sort of historical yeah, time or cushion. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but uh, it's very, very well done. Like I really enjoyed. To be honest, the thing that I really enjoyed was the narration. And what it was interesting is that every once in a while they go back to the narrator, who was a BBC correspondent. And he said he was Canadian, and it would show him like with his record player and talking to and reading like um, intelligence reports and just talking about how bad the fighting was and then uh, like it was really well filmed but I just I really liked the narration portion of it and as much as like movies back then aren't gory it definitely did show like you know like <laughs> it was pretty it was pretty bad mm-hmm. and um, it, I was very impressed at how well that film was done I must say I wonder if sort of some of that verisimilitude uh, appears because um Young was there, you know. Young was in Operation Market Guard. Well, I mean, is it is it worth saying something more generally about that? Because as a tank commander with the Irish Guard, he was involved in that combat. Do you want to say anything about well, that? Well, that's what I was going to say. Is I think that, I mean, I think obviously, you know, being a, a veteran at this point and and, and being in a in a, a very large. I, I mean, at the in nineteen forty four, that was the large that Market Garden, which is actually two. Like it was actually the name of two different sub operations put together. One was market, one was garden. Market was the airborne assault to seize the bridges. Garden was the ground attack over the seized bridges. Um, yes. That was the other operation. Um, but what it was is it was it was basically the largest airborne operation of the war at that point. And this yes. was this was almost going to be like Operation Overlord Part Two, mm-hmm. and and it just it, it didn't work. Like they just got. I mean, as much as they had a lot of troops and they had a lot of uh, 
practice and they you know uh and and airborne troops at the time were kind of like they were like the the shock troops of, of the British and American armies that weren't necessarily special forces, but everyone knows that in nowadays, like airborne troops are almost kind of like special forces, right? So they all have the berets. Everyone knows, you know, your paratroopers. That's kind of coincidental, like you know, the commandos, that kind of stuff. So yeah. there's a lot of these guys, and uh, and they they went up against some really tough. SS, Panzer Divisions, and soldiers. So this was a very, very, very tough, uh, just nasty street fight for, well, what, seven days? Uh, it was almost a race because they had to be, yeah, get, they had to get, they had to get control of all the bridges. They basically, like, they had to secure the bridges and then make sure the Irish Guard would come all the way through to, you know, to uh, relieve them, right? Right. That was the whole point right. of it, right? It was, and... Because this is along the Ruhr Valley, which was basically the was, was Nazi Germany's like industrial heartland, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, if they had seized these bridges and therefore these towns, it would almost like have ended the war early. Exactly, that was the whole point, and and there was uh, some discrepancy, and um, and uh, Eisenhower was saying that versus uh, Monty, right? Yeah, that's what it was. Is that uh, Eisenhower stated that, um, stated that he thought like that an advance on a broad front would soon provoke German forces to collapse. And he said, he told Montgomery that, uh, you know, a single thrust towards Berlin was not going to be accepted. I quote, what you're proposing is this. If I give you all the supplies you want, you can go straight to Berlin. Monty, you're nuts. You can't do it. What the hell? If you try a long column like that, a single thrust, you'd throw your division uh, after division to protect your flanks from the attack. And Monty did it it anyways. Yeah. That's, and also, too, uh, yeah. uh, they they were warned about the weather, and they, I, I believe Monty ignored that as well. Yeah, because the weather affected like how how well the paratroops dropped when so they didn't have enough man uh, men uh, in certain areas uh, when when they needed them. Right. Now, Josh, I'm correct, aren't I, in saying that Double uh, O G O, our Granny O, who hasn't been on the show <laughs> for a while, her late husband Jack Adderley was a veteran of Market Garden. That's wow. what I understand. Yes. Yeah. Oh. This is our grandmother's second husband, for those of you listening who know who Double O'Geo is. Yeah, grand, yeah. Our, right, our, cool. our, our, our lovely grandmother, uh, she's uh, currently still in her retirement home in uh, Newfoundland, doing quite well, I understand. Yes, and she was part of, uh, what, 22 of our first season episodes. She definitely was. Yeah, she only missed out on two film reviews with us. All right, cool. Uh, you guys got anything else about Market Garden you want to add before I move on with Young's career? Um... No. I feel like this but, was but, this uh, has been a good diversion. Out, yeah, check out <laughs> there is the glory. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and even Please too do. a bridge too far because hey, it got Sean Connery in it, directed mm-hmm. by D, uh, Richard Attenborough. Yeah, and it's got a great, it's got a great Robert Redford. Uh, it's got Cliff Clavin in it too. If you guys watch Cheers, I can't remember. Well, Cliff Clavin is also in The Empire Strikes Back. As yes, well, I know. So. It's same year too, right? It's on the same year, I think. Is he really? So, Oh, no, it wasn't. Sorry, sorry. Empire Strikes Back was 80. This was, I think uh, British Far was 77. 77 or 79, maybe? I, I'm not quite yeah. sure. Um, one thing yeah, I... have got Sean Connery, Michael Caine, yeah. Robert Redford, who has a great little moment Anthony in that Hopkins. movie. Anthony uh, Hopkins. Just, just having a look yeah. at it now. It's 1977. Okay. okay. So Star Wars yeah. year. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. The, what, I, what I was going to mention, I was just going to mention sort of, um, so obviously Market Garden was a failed operation. Yes. But the idea, like what Josh was saying, the idea was to just sort of like, like let's try and end this war as soon as possible. Okay. Um, and uh, it, didn't, it didn't work. 
So it, it is considered uh, a failed operation, but uh, there was five Victoria Crosses and two Medal of Honours that were awarded um, during the the, the, the battle. Um, so and obviously there's lots of other um, service other medals, yeah, service medals and, and um, stuff like that. But um, it just uh, so happened that like yeah, in, in Holland in particular, like there's just loads of Waffen SS divisions all the way through, like their Panzer divisions, mm-hmm. and then on top of that, in command, which wasn't good for their for the Allies' odds, was like was uh, Field Marshal von Rundstad as well. So they definitely had a uh, a challenge to overcome, and I, unfortunately they failed. But you know. Jeff is absolutely yeah. right. We've got to honor their sacrifice, 100%. And I mean, at the risk of being trite, and I don't think we, we need to go into this because it is, I think, trite. Um, these experiences obviously form uh, a skin. They create, uh, and I'm not a man of military service. Certainly it's in my family, but I have had zero of these experiences myself. So I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't speak for service men and women, but I, I, I feel as though these experiences... They, they create a a part of a character or they edge out a part of a character. They reveal mm. character maybe in a way that um, we don't need to articulate. But everyone who served in the war is bringing their experiences exactly. to the work yes. that they do. And so I'm not, yes. not going to ask, I'm not going to ask like, well, what do you think this did for Terrence Young as a director? Because I think that's a stupid question. But well, I, I do think it, it contributed some toughness, some some angle of maybe even, you know, appreciation for just having uh, the comradeship of having a crew of people you could depend upon working towards a common goal, that sort of thing. If you look at the quality of this film, and uh, Terrence Young wrote it, um, and, and that's what I was going to say. And is Hearst that, directed it, right? And, and, and Hearst directed it. Is that was in Gallipoli, by the way. I was yeah, I, I, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So he, he survived Gallipoli, so there you go. Um, but I was going to say that uh, Terrence Young, being a veteran of the operation of which the film was dealing with, you're going to put your, your best foot forward. You're going to, you're going to make it a, a quality uh, product, and so I, I can definitely see that this is a quality product, and yes. I can see that the, both the individuals, the director, and and Terrence Young himself as the writer, put their best foot forward here because obviously one, who wants to make a a, a war documentary, uh, you know, a not not quality, especially so so close to the, you know the end of the, the war, the end yeah. of the war. yeah, um, and, and so I can definitely see that. This is a very, very well put together piece. Terrence Young, uh, being who he was in the war and the type of person that he is, put his best foot forward for the quality of this uh, production. For sure, definitely a, a a breakthrough. I think it probably got him recognized in the industry of someone of sophistication, of uh, and on top of his own reputation alone as well so hmm. well it was kind of yeah. at this point you know that young departs from screenwriting and moves into directing and which is uh, a normal pathway it, it is a normal yeah. path yeah directors. that's true yeah like like kubrick was a photographer and he was also a writer and then of course he got into directing so mm-hmm. you can see him like uh, terrence young uh even like guys at the time like david lean uh the, you know that whole crowd of people that's how they originated as journalists or photographers and yeah. then writers and then moving into the um uh, directing part of things. Yeah, I mean, that is very normal. It's very organic that way. But if you were to look at his his life and sort of demarcate that split between when did I stop writing and when did I start, or sorry, when, do, when did I add directing to my life, it would have been on his return from war. He never really stopped writing. He was always working on... Um, you know, working on projects, if not his own films, and he was working with, you know, others and, and whatnot. But in 1948, um, he did a film, Corridor of Mirrors, which was his second director credit. 
and it was Christopher Lee's first film. And this was produced in France, and it was um, awarded the best picture of the year there. Lois Maxwell, also in this That's film. Right. And later that year, he directed Woman Hater, which was a Stuart Granger comedy. And so he, he's generating this reputation. I think it's a quiet reputation. You know, he's not competing with Hitchcock or anybody, but he's, he's no. generating this reputation as being a guy who can direct different films and, and, and add different tones and atmosphere to his, his resume, you know? He's kind of like the journeyman director you want to go to right away, you know? You're going to get a certain yeah, style think, yeah. and sophistication no matter what you get from, no matter what the, what, what the story or the type of movie well, it is. Well, I don't know he's there just yet josh but i guess what i'm saying is his first but, three projects are a different genre sort of you know and he also was a writer on the, the caesar and cleopatra film at the time uh in the late 40s it wasn't a well-known it wasn't a particularly big production but he's the one that got roger moore the, the, the bit part in the movie mm-hmm. that's which right was like one of yes. roger moore's first appearances yeah. i think he wow. played a roman he played a he played a roman like uh like a guard for Mark Antony or something like that. <laughs> right. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. He did. Uh, 1950, They Were Not Divided. This is a film depicting the guards' armored division. Uh, that was his film, right? They Were Not Divided. I want to check out, yeah. Yeah. The cast was real soldiers. Oh, yeah. Okay, so think about it. 1950, okay? Oh, yeah. The cast was made up of real soldiers with speaking oh, wow. parts and some actors. Okay, but most of the actors, like we're talking about, were guys like him who had actually served in combat. And so yeah. I think the film established... That sounds a, that sounds a lot like uh, Italian neorealism, like Rossellini and all those guys, mm. like the Bicycle Thief or the Roma. Uh, uh, Roma, I forget the name of the movie now. It's escaping me now. Well, uh, but anyways, they use real actors in their in their movies. Uh that was basically real, real actors. <laughs> wow, real actors in their Sorry. movies. Oh my god, uh, they, use, they use like non they use non actors yeah. in their films. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what I meant to say. Well, he, he's doing this, and I mean, it's funny you mentioned Italy. He's, he's going to go to work in Italy later, too. But um, most of, yeah, so most of the actors in this film, they were not divided, served in combat. And so the film establishes between the actors who served and the real soldiers, this realism. Uh, you know, it's not too far removed from history either. It's only five years after the end of the war. Uh, in this film, we got Christopher Lee again, Anthony Dawson, and Desmond Llewellyn all yeah. in this movie. Yeah. So uh, Dawson and Lee would work again with Terrence Young on his ne- in the next year in a film called Valley of Eagles, which was a thriller. Get this, okay? Just try to figure this one out. It's a thriller about a Norwegian scientist who creates a machine that can convert sound waves into electrical energy, but this guy's wife steals the technology and tries to cross over with it into Russia. Okay? That's the plot of that film. That's wow. crazy. Yeah, Valley that of sounds- Eagles. Yeah, I, I want to check that one out. And this is obviously, prior to yeah. this is obviously prior to Christopher Lee becoming a Hammer horror film like uh, mm-hmm. staple, right? So this yeah, is yeah. yeah. So this guy's career has always been into genre all the time. It seems. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think the Bond story begins around this time, and the reason yes. I say it begins around this time is because he directs a film in 1952, which is a rather forgettable British drama called The Tall Headlines. It's about a family that deals with the grief of their, after their son is hanged, and you know he's hanged for murder, and uh, anyway, at this point, he moves over to start working with Warwick Films. Now, when we did Dr. No, Josh took us through a lot of that, so if you want to know what that was all about, and where he met Cubby Broccoli and all of that, go check out our Dr. No, Cubby's Corner. Josh did a great job on it, okay? Go check out that episode from season one. But but anyway, it's there that he, he yeah, he, he gets himself wrapped up with Cubby Broccoli and Urban Allen in Warwick Films. 
Okay, that's the company that these guys are working on. And in 1953, he directs The Red Beret. 1955, he directs That Lady with Olivia de Havilland. And he also does Storm Over the Nile. Okay, in 19... Which was a shot-by-shot remake of uh, Corda's that's Four right. Feathers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. He then goes on to direct Safari with Janet Lee and Zarek with Anita Ekberg. And the reason I'm mentioning these women is because with Warwick Films, if not before, Young is now getting experience with... And exposure to very, very starry ladies, okay, leading yes. ladies. Now, part of his yes. cool control, I think it's got to come from here because let's be honest, right? You're not going to be very effective or respected as a director if you're goo gooing all of these incredible stars that, that you're working with. Yeah. If you're kind of, he has you know, discipline. He, he, discipline. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, yeah. Think, I think that working with these really powerful figures is starting to show us how he kind of got the respect of so many of the stars in his own films later on. Does that make any sense to you? I don't know if that's kind of... Yes. Kind of I understand what you, I understand what oh, you yeah. mean. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Because you don't really hear any rumors. I mean, you know that he was a ladies' man for sure, but you don't hear any anything about like Richard Burton-esque kind of affairs on the set. You know what I mean? With, with yeah, Darren yeah. And the women who do speak of him, and there are many that do within the Bond films, certainly, they She's all speak very, very fondly of him. They really like Martin like Beswick always has great praise. Ursula Andress uh, loved him. Uh and Lois Maxwell in particular as well. Although I believe it was Terrence Young who told uh, Lois Maxwell, this is early in her career, there was a part that she wanted to get, mm-hmm. but apparently uh, the, this other girl got it, and he basically told her that uh, you smelled like soap, this yeah. girl smelled yeah. like sex. That's right. That, <laughs> that, that's, like, the gist, wow. that's the gist of it. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, but she, yeah. I mean, Lois Maxwell still liked him quite a bit. Anyway. In 1958, Young directs No Time to Die, okay? So this is a re- real film, 1958, No Time to Die. Once again, this is for Cubby and Warwick. It was a war film set in North, North Africa. He also co-wrote it with, who do you think? Uh, Dick Maybaum. Yeah, I was going to wait. It, it's, okay, because it shows that it's called Tank Force. Is that a different title for this uh, Maybe in America it was, but... Uh, oh, no, the no original... Yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Sorry. 1959, he goes back to... Oh, I should say I skipped some, didn't I? Uh, he first met oh, John Connery in 57 because MGM right. hired him to do a film called Action of the Tiger. Uh, and I think there was yeah. a young Sean Connery in that film. It That's was, right. I think it was about some political thing in Albania. I don't I don't have the note to me here. But anyway, so and yeah, he, point, he knows yeah. Connery. Yeah, and it's interesting because this is also the time too like who Terrence Young is going to basically recall from exile or I guess from semi-retirement is Anthony Dawson. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. at this point, Anthony Dawson's career, I think at this point he's a crop duster, uh, which is kind of funny given that, you know, he's a Hitchcock staple as well. And uh, yeah. we all know <laughs> <think of crop-dusting. laughs> yeah. Was he after uh, George Capelin there? Or? <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah, really. Roger Thornhill. Sorry, Roger Thornhill. R- George Capelin was the uh, the fake... Uh, That's right, yeah. yeah. Mr. Kaplan. <laughs> Mr. Kaplan. Mr. Kaplan, yeah. Oh, look, I, I didn't... James I, there's did James it. Mason. I did it. There God damn. Go. <laughs> anyway, I love James Mason. Right, so uh, 1959, right? He also does this film with MGM called... Um, uh, well, A Touch of Hell, okay? In the US is what it was called. Serious Charge is what it was called over here. A film yeah. about a vicar who tries to get a 19-year-old to face up to his responsibilities with the girl that he gets pregnant, okay? So 
this was strange. It's something I'm not gonna call it strange, right? Certainly not strange because if you think about that film, what's that film that uh, Spencer Tracy was in? I want to say it was called Boys Town, but I don't think that's right. It was where he was a priest and he was trying to kind of set guys on the right path too. Like I think there was a precedent for these sorts of moral, religious sort of quasi-social films. But anyway, he's he's got his I, I he's got his nib into Tracy that. One. Yeah, he was definitely a vicar in one of these films. I think it was called Boys Town, but I, you know, I don't I don't want to say that without being certain. Anyway. Jane Mansfield comes into his life next in 1960, Too Hot to Handle. <laughs> Christopher Lee, also in that one. Christopher Lee's got this great way of hopping into these films with these beautiful actresses, hey? I don't know I how... Know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, 1961, okay, so we're getting really close to Bond here. In 1961, he was lured to Italy to direct Lure of Champions about the Roman hero Horatius leading his troops against the forces in Alba. And by Horatius this... Kalki. That's uh, exactly Horatius it. Horatius yeah, yep, exactly. Calcus. By, by this point, Terence Young's name was on the posters of his films alongside the actors so not not the way that john ford or hitchcock's was but noticeable certainly in that oh it's a terence young picture you know what i mean like i don't think people were using his name as currency yet but the film film industry knew of him and he had cut his teeth uh quite well Anyway, he earned the respect as a guy who could work with stars, write well, and also direct action. And this is important. He was also a stylish partygoer. The people who worked for him and with him liked working with and for him. And yes. he was a good, sensible choice for this first director, for the first Bond film directing. Because when Dr. No came into production, Cubby and, um, uh, Cubby and Harry had a guy who they could speak for, or at least Cubby could speak for, right? And he knew that he was, like you said, Josh, that sort of workmanlike um, director who could give you what you wanted and he would have discipline on the set and he would have the respect of the people around him. So, uh, you know, and Ken Adam, I know, is, is famously regard, uh, famously reported as saying that, you know, this guy, uh, Terrence Young, had no ego about him on set. There was nothing mm -hmm. about him. Even though he loved the high life and spending money and always had the champagne and the dinners, he would never make you feel like a piece of shit, you know? Like, he didn't have that. Yes. He wasn't interested in that. He was like, a Martin Campbell, that's for sure. Yeah. Although he would yell, and I'll get a couple stories about that later. Yeah, but he wasn't, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, you know... Uh, that that's that that basically brings us up to to, to bond but before dr. we know yeah but before we talk about dr no i did do you guys know the actor named roland culver it sounds no, familiar not by name the reason i, mean, I asked is because terence young directed a lot of films with him okay now i'm just looking through these films as i'm doing my research and prep for the show and i'm seeing all these different cast lists i'm like roland culver's coming up time and time again i mean i mean a lot okay, okay. incidentally Thunderball, his last film in the Bond franchise at least, Terrence Young casts Culver as the Foreign Secretary. Oh, mm. so we, 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 we better hurry, shan't mm. we? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that, 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 that's uh, okay. I'm now, as soon as like you mentioned the Foreign Secretary, yeah. I literally remembered his name from the cast now, and I remember reading a, blur a blurb about that guy, how he was with uh, Terrence Young. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, Josh, you outlined when we did Dr. No that when Broccoli split from Irwin and he took up the Bond mantle with Saltzman, he brought along a lot of the Warwick crew to help. And Young, obvious first choice to direct because he had been trusted, demonstrated his ability in different genres. And now I think they wanted like Ken, Ken Hughes when they went for. There was a couple of other directors, but they, they basically settled with Terrence Young because they knew him. He was mm -hmm. part of the of the Warwick and team, you know, with Cubby uh, and, and Alan before, it, you know, it. it uh, imploded. So he was definitely the best choice. And of course, uh, we'll talk about, I guess, uh, the influence that he had on Sean mm -hmm. Connery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And creating the Bond aesthetic. Well, a lot of that is mythos and a lot of it is true. I think sometimes separating the myth from the fact is is interesting. Now, I've got Terrence Young on that subject and I've got other people on that subject. But I think we can maybe just get some of the facts out the way first. I mean, he was, first of all, instrumental in recruiting Connery to the role. A lot of people believe it was just Dana Broccoli in a dark room decided after watching Darby O'Gill and the Little People that this is the guy. Yeah, it, it didn't really happen that way. It wasn't just her who said to her husband, I think he'd be perfect. Um, and, and of course, Lois Maxwell also, you know, has, has has some interesting things to say about how Connery came into the role and how Terrence Young had some involvement in that, too, you know. And yeah. she, she goes on to say that um, that Terrence Young essentially preened Connery by taking him to dinner. He was a rough diamond. To, yeah, well, he was. But to, he to was her. like this rough Scotsman. And, and even though he did the acting jobs before, they needed someone of more sophistication, not like a working man type role. They needed someone of sophistication. And and, and that was the task that uh, Terrence Young had ahead of him. It was, but it's it's not... Like, Terrence Young doesn't remember that as a task as such. Like, that's what people say. Like, Connery was this big, stiff, bodybuilding guy who couldn't speak. He was like a wrestler from the WWE who just came in and needed to be <laughs> needed to be shown how to use a fork and stuff like that. Like, it wasn't like that, okay? But <laughs> I think... He took him I, to Phil Rowe and showed him how to, you know... He did, yeah. He took him suit. to... Yeah. Where, where, you know, where Sean Connery had to spend a night wearing the whole suit and then... That was basically mm-hmm. that was that's, that could be part of the mythos as well. But I don't. That's that's what I read anyway. No, he did take him to Savile Row. He did take him to his own tailor. He did take him to fine restaurants and talk to him about wine. And he taught him. You know, he showed him stuff about how to walk and all of that. But I, you know, I got a quote here from Terrence Young about this very subject because it, it's it's a little bit different to some of the stuff that you know the, the stories tell you. Um, I like and, a hot take. Well, maybe this is Young. Maybe this is Young kind of playing it down a little bit too, right? But he credits Connery as being quote a very quick study, and he plays down the whole My Fair Lady mythos, you know, mythos <laughs> by, by saying that you know they had a week together in Jamaica before filming, where he went out to dinner. He kind of taught him a little bit about coolness and sort of style and how to walk and all of that stuff. Now, the reason I say that the truth is somewhere in between is because a lot of set. A lot of people on the set and a lot of the cast say that what Connery was doing throughout the duration of filming was essentially a Terrence Young impersonation. Like, that's what they say he was doing. And that, that yes, then went so about and I, did it. Sorry, I heard, yeah. So no. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking that we've got we've got, we got to find the, the truth somewhere in the middle, you know, because Young is saying, I only spent a week with the guy. And yeah, sure, I showed him stuff about drinking and eating and maybe posture and whatnot. But none of us have got, you know, record of him you know, saying I stood Connery up and I stapled a, a meter stick to his back. And, you know, and we don't have any of that type of shit, you know, but I like, do or, think or or, or or made him a puppet, basically. Yeah, exactly. I made him a puppet. And I and oh, I don't yeah. and I don't think it's quite as I don't think quite fair to Connery to say that everything no. he did was 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 doing it because this is what Terrence Young said to do. I, I think that the truth is somewhere in between, but there's no doubt that yes. he refined the roughness of that that diamond, as you're saying, Josh. You know, um, but but it wasn't like yeah. a like uh, a laser diamond. It was he wasn't cutting it with a laser. He was just like chipping off little pieces. You know, like yeah. he, that that he needed to do. Like the yeah. work was already he was already half done when he started. Mm-hmm. I think because I think Connery was, was even though he was yes a, a Mr. Universe, and then he ended up you know like he was an actor even before yeah. the Bond films. He so he would have had some. Because it was with that society, there would have been some, you know, refining of his character already. So I just Absolutely. think Terrence Young just kind of like, you know, he filled in the blanks where they needed mm-hmm. needed needed to be filled in, so that uh, Connery could pull off the Bond role. Yes, but it, it, it is a disservice to Connery to say that he's simply doing a Terrence Young impression, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Channeling yeah. Terrence yes. like Terrence Young, 
like kind of like Joaquin Phoenix did uh, Johnny Cash, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like that performance that Joaquin Phoenix did, for example, mm-hmm. that's still Joaquin Phoenix putting his own spin on Johnny yes. Cash. Yeah. And the other thing, the other thing we, we need to acknowledge here is that this is the first Bond film. And so Terrence Young and his work with Connery is is really, it's kind of the evolution of everything, right? And there is no Bond style before this movie. And so it's not just like he's putting his own spin on Connery's performance. He's also trying to take the, the, the pages of a book and turn those to life through a character for the very first time. And I think that, you know, the the synthesis of, uh, of of styles and and influence is really what we need to think about here not just the one guy taking a guy out to dinner you know and showing him how to eat but i will just point i'll point you in the direction of this article by um robert cotton okay you, you can get this online i was just i was reading this thing and he kind of flips it again and says that by the time connery showed up for his first days of filming young had changed everything about him Connery no longer talked with his hands, which apparently was one of Young's most infamous pet peeves. He still moved perfectly, but Young had coached him on when to move. So not to kind of jump the walk and not to sort of, you know, uh, move with two big gestures, just kind of nuance, less is more type thing, you know. Right. Uh, as you're saying, Josh, according to this guy, Robert Cotton, uh, Connery was already far from being a hack actor when he came to the series, but Young knew how to make him shine. And he took elements of his own personality and passed them on to Connery and essentially turns Connery into a gentleman. And then that gentleman, he turns into the fictional character that we, yes. that we know from the story. So, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, it's quite strange. We're going to get on to talk about the films in just a couple of minutes. I've only got a few more notes to go. So we'll come back to this idea maybe when we share some feelings about Dr. No. But yes. Dr. No was a huge hit, of course. From Usher With Love came next, was an even bigger hit. Um, check out our episodes on those two films if you want to learn more about Young's near-death experience during the production oh, of the film. helicopter. Yes. Yeah, the yeah, helicopter, it... buddy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the phone was ringing heavily after the first two Bond films. I guess is is the you know the, the the common denominator of this chat here. He said no to Goldfinger, and instead he directed the amorous adventures of Maul Flanders. Now this is a loose adaptation of the Defoe novel, but it starred another beauty, Kim Novak. Okay. He then another returns, Hitchcock, uh, yeah, another lady. Hitchcock. Yeah, he then returns for Thunderball, and according to him, he was di- he was offered the director uh, seat for both For Your Eyes Only and Never Say Never Again, but he turned them both down. Mm-hmm. He worked almost exclusively in European films after Thunderball, continuing to work with stars, but from a distance. Uh, for, but but with a distance from Hollywood, and he seemed to really enjoy that distance. I mean, it didn't stop him from working with big names. It's just it was a little bit more on terms, uh, on his terms. Kind so of. So he's like, almost kind of regressing back to his forties and fifties, you know, working within the British film industry or the yes, European I think film so. industry. Now you say yeah. regress, and I don't know. I would use that word, but I think maybe like like Hearst himself at the outset, we we're saying neither one of these guys sold out. Or if they did, they didn't sell out and leave yeah. their identities behind. Maybe he was just he more uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of, yeah. I wanted to say a word, but I kind of realized at the end that wasn't the word I meant to say. But it was already coming out anyway. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think regress <laughs> was the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you know, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau when he knew what he wanted to say, but at the end of sentence, so he ended up saying speaking moistly instead, right? Yeah. So. Well, whatever. <laughs> that, I mean, he can get away with that, you know. Yeah. Anyway, but so. Later Sometimes in his you career, you got to finish the sentence, even if it's mm-hmm. even if it's you know, not great. <laughs> but even though he was away from Hollywood, he still worked with the stars, like I've said, Audrey Hepburn, Omar Sharif, William Holden, Michael Caine, Laurence Olivier. All of these guys and girls were going to be working with him afterwards. And wait for it, 
three films with Charles Bronson. Thank you very much. I, I saw that, yeah, in his mm. filmography. Now, here's something curious. He, he edited this film, The Long Days, a uh, six-hour 1980 Iraqi TV biopic oh, of Saddam yeah. Hussein. I saw that, yeah. It's really, yeah. It's, now, now there's, Saddam Hussein was an American oh, asset. Know, eh? Well, yeah, <laughs> but th- there's, there's an excellent article on mi6hq.com if you want to go look at it. Okay, it'll outline the stuff better than we're going to do here. But essentially... A lot of people believe that he did more than just editing this, but was also behind the camera. Now, either way, and before flinging criticism in Young's direction, I think we got to remember that uh, Hussein's regime was thought of a little bit differently in the West in 1980, 79, 80, yeah, compared because, to how it is viewed today. You know? Well, it's because he was the good guy. Because mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, the West or the West, the Americans, I guess, in the West were on uh, Iraq side because they had to choose a side between Iran or Iraq. So yeah. If you, if you, I mean, they, I mean, they, they, they knew I'm who really he was. That but, down, but. Yes, because they knew he was who, you know, they knew his regime was ruthless and, and whatnot. Yes. But anyway, somehow, uh, somehow he gets himself wrapped up in this and you can understand why uh, post 80, uh, no one's really wanting to talk about this uh, yeah. in, in retrospective stories about Terrence Young, but it's, it's weird. Like, I don't know. I couldn't find any information on, on really the truth of the matter. Even this article on MI6HQ kind of leaves us with more questions and answers. But 1981, anyway, after this period, he, he makes a film called Inchon, which is right. one of his worst motion pictures, according to the critics. I mean, it is panned, you know. I mean, it's panned universally. It, yes. I don't know much about it. It portrayed the titular Korean War battle and was financed mm-hmm. by the Unification Church founder, Sun Myung Moon. Now, I, I cannot comment on its quality. I have not seen Inchon. All I know is that it is one of several dubious projects. Little Moon from yeah. Die Another Day? <laughs> I don't know about that, but it pebbled his, pep, his, his reputation in the twilight of his career. And, you know, I think... You know, he is best remembered and celebrated. And I think he's to be thanked for refining Connery's edges because he gave us the, the bond oh, yeah. that we love, right? But yeah. um, have you guys heard of this movie, Where is Parsifal, by the way? No. I had no Parsifal, clue about like this our, either. Isn't, it, isn't he an Arthurian knight? Well, yeah, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Wagner's opera, Parsifal, tells that story. But um, which, you know, th- this movie, Where is Parsifal, is on the list of BFI's, the British Film Institute's most wanted lost films. Apparently, huh. it screened in Cannes in 1984 and then just disappeared. It features a really good cast, Orson Welles, Tony Curtis, Peter Lawford, Donald Pleasance, but it was savaged by the critics who saw it. And from what I can discover of the plot, it appears that Tony Curtis plays Parsifal, uh, this eccentric hypochondriac who has invented... Tony la- Curtis. He's invented a, a laser skywriter and he's trying to sell the patent. Um, we then got this cast of oddballs that defend, descends on Parsifal's castle. There's a bunch of frenetic comic episodes. I don't know if this is like Pink Panther. I, I don't know. Or, or Almost sounds like Money Python or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what is this? Yeah, it's just weird. Like, where did this film go? Where did this film go? It's odd. Like, where did these films just dis- How can a film premiere at Cannes? Yeah, that's what disappear? I mean. How does it disappear? I guess yeah. it didn't find, at the time, it couldn't find the distribution. I maybe, suppose, and maybe, maybe. it just didn't then it up. just went into someone's suitcase and it stayed there. Like, yeah. well, an important thing to know too is that uh, Dorothy, uh, Dorothea Bennett, who was uh, Clarence Young's wife, she yeah. passed away a year later in 1985. Uh, maybe it had, yeah, maybe the timing there. So, was, was I'm wondering, on, yeah. maybe that's maybe she started falling ill uh-huh. or something around that time, and who knows, right? It was never picked up in distribution after. Either way, it's a you know, it's a rather strange, a, a rather strange end. 
and kind of a forgotten ending to this this figure, this great figure's career in film. Anyway, look, that's a lot to digest, um, and we're going to get on now for a half hour or so and talk about the Bond films. We're going to talk about the you know the Bond films, the things we love from them. But that's right. that's that's a bit on 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 Young and his career. What do you think, guys? Terrence Young, his Bond films. I mean, let's let's just go at it. What do you think? Excellent. I mean, yeah. If you remember from how I, I uh, you know, with my my list, I my favorite Bond film is from Russia with Love. So, I yeah. I'm pretty uh, sure. I'm pretty sure you rated the Man with the Golden Gun as number one, didn't you? Nah. Uh, no. No, no, right. Not, no. That was you, Scott, wasn't it? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't me. I just remember uh, Jeff Champion, uh, Sergeant J.W. Pepper, quite a bit, oh. quite hard. Oh, yeah. He's a yeah. hard champion. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, right. Young wouldn't have allowed a character like that in his Bond films, that's for sure. No. no. You don't think so, eh? I don't think so. No. I don't think so. Not on purpose. I don't know. <laughs> He would have definitely had a lot of like, this is how you walk, this is how you talk, this is how you eat. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Man, now, yeah. now, if yeah. you made a movie about that, yeah. I would watch that. <laughs> about yeah. Terrence Young trying to refine the manners. Yeah. It would be like Pygmalion with like J.W. <laughs> Pepper. I don't know, it would be Pygmalion spelled P-I-G. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> To, to be fair, to be fair, that guy's actually like he was a very. Good, <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Like a New York, <laughs> like New York character. That's actor right. He was so. a New York character actor. Yeah, yeah. Character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, but no. So, anyways, uh, from Russia with Love. Yeah, I mean, obviously, look at that. That that is. That's a piece of art. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. It's style, right? And, and I mean, style. that's what most people. That's what most people credit Terrence Young as bringing, not just to Connery, but to the. The, the Bond style that we all know and love and which has really just been sort of sculpted upon ever since the beginning. And for that, you know, in that respect, he, whether he's a favorite or not, he has to be seen as one of the most important. Right. Absolutely. I, I also think he was one of the one of the directors that really brought Fleming style to the screen as well. Hmm. If you look at Dr. No, even even with Dr. No and then moving onward from Marshall of Love, he is a big fan, I think, or, or try to put that in the film anyways, of the the travelogue sequences that Fleming had in his novels. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, he was all about yeah. the arrival of planes at airports and Bond going through airports and the whole, the whole yeah, aspect. Yeah, he, he did like that. that. Uh, in, in his films, you see Bond sitting sitting down having breakfast, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all about those little minutiae that, that Ian Fleming uh, was, was uh, very, uh, uh, what's the word? He was very persistent in putting mm-hmm. it in, in his mm-hmm. passages. So what? So what you're saying is is um, Terrence Young really kind of uh, brought that to light. What were you saying, like with the travel logs and all that sort of imagery from the books? He really kind of was able to put that on film in, in a in a feasible way. Yeah, if you look at the, even the scene too of how he builds up, like the first appearance of Sean Connery as James Bond, like it doesn't mm-hmm. show it doesn't show Sean Connery's face yet. He's sitting at the table playing, you know, playing baccarat with Miss Trench there, mm-hmm. or, and and then it's just 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 slight little close-ups of different of his hands, right? Uh, him smoking, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or yeah. Snap, she's seen yeah. him from behind, and then building up to that for, the, for that big reveal. This was a patient, very deliberate filmmaker, right. and yeah, uh, yeah. And Con- think- conscious also of the fact that this like very first film in this 
character's life this is not just a regular film like there's a as you're saying josh you know this this waiting game this here's a tease here here's a tease there and we see peter hunt do the exact same thing with majesties when he comes on and bond is chasing Teresa. you know we've got the hands up or the the, the close-up of the cigarette case and all that stuff you're getting that sort of deliberate i'm going to create a character here balls to the wall from the very beginning i'm not going to I'm going to create something brand new. It's not just a character walks on the set and says his lines. Like I'm going to create an atmosphere that goes along with this, you know? Yeah. Like he was yeah. aware that almost that James Bond at this point was a, I was almost like a, almost like a superhero character, you know, like he had his own mythology already established in the novels that were written. And so Terrence Young wanted to build up the reveal. Mm-hmm. So the audience will just, or is just are automatically absorbed into the story and, into, and, 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 and they get the, the big, the fans, yeah, relish, you know, like that build up and then that reveal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if this is the right spot for this, but do you think this is a hot take where if if Terrence Young hadn't directed Dr. No from Retro Love, the earlier, like two out of the, you know, two out of the three, uh, three early four. Bond, sorry, three out of the four earlier Bond films. Yeah. Um, do you think uh, the, the Bond films would have done as well? Ooh, that's, that's a good question. So that's what I'm thinking. Is like if you just see, especially of how we're talking about Terrence Young, you know how he carried himself, um, the quality works that he did for you know 20 years up to this point, um, and 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 how he took Connery, like we were saying, under his wing, and, and regardless of you know if he made him into a real boy like Pinocchio or whatever. Um, do you think if we had another director, albeit like a quality director, do you think him? would have done as well and do you think it would have been as well received that's a that's a that is the question really because it comes back to this issue of style i mean so much of what we love about bond and bond style we have to go back here to the dna because it's 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 young offering and creating and sculpting and working with what's also in front of him because connery was a a big powerful presence a sexy guy you know i mean we got a lot of that already there but (laughs) i i I think yes i think I, i gotta agree with the kind of doubt that you're asking me to play with, I don't think the Bond series would have been as good under a different director. I think that if, if a guy like Hitchcock or maybe a more visually inter- appealing guy, you know, a Kubrick or something, had taken this this project on, or, or I mean, I'm using these two big figures, well, I, so yeah. many great directors that could have done this, but I, I think that... I think it had to be somebody who had a style and a flair to their own well, life that he was willing to contribute and willing to bring and the courage to do that because if it's you don't have a lightning in a bottle kind of situations. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it really is, Josh. Yeah. But I, I would say no. I would say no. Yeah. I think that I think that the Bond films wouldn't have been it would have it would have maybe become something different. It's know? something I, different. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I'm it saying. would have been as much about style as it might have been about girls or as much about about action. I think style yeah. side of things, there's no way anybody but Terrence Young could have done this. Yeah, well, there's no well, way that yeah. I absolutely like you think about it like in, in this is a guy who served in World War II who was already a writer who was already and then got into into filmmaking on from from that point on. And this is also, as you mentioned in that story about Eddie Chapman, about how he had to kind of like assess him and everything like that. This is a guy knew who knew how international and international espionage yeah. functioned, and the, particularly in the Terrence Young films, even the bloated Thunderball, but Doctor No from Marshall of Love in particular. That is, but to me, I, I was I find those are the great Bond films because you really see Bond as a spy in those mm-hmm. movies. I mean, mm-hmm. I love Goldfinger to pieces, but Bond is basically like a superhero detective in Goldfinger. Yeah, I guess the departure the departure lounge was Goldfinger, wasn't it? 
Yes. So then do you guys view Thunderball as kind of trying to bring Bond back down a little bit? I mean, yes, come on, but, the, but, the, film, but, the film is, well, is out of control, no, no, no. right? It is it out of control, control, but... I think Terrence Young was trying to do that, but I don't yeah. think he... I don't think he had the... I'm not saying I'm not the ta- talent, but mm. I think the type of film that they were wanted with Thunderball, which is basically... Because I know they wanted Guy Hamilton for Thunderball anyways, after, mm-hmm. but yeah. then he turned it down, and so they got Terrence Young again. And I think Thunderball would have served better as a Guy Hamilton film. Yeah, so well, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Terrence yeah. Young film. Well, I think this is kind of I think of where they are in the series is that it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So you still like Terrence Young is as we could see, he's got that tight wrapped espionage like quality to him. Whereas Thunderball has that. But you can also see where Bond is the Bond franchise is, is is swelling. So it's like Terrence Young is trying to like hold this hold this beach ball that's being sort of you know um blown blown up with a pump but mm-hmm. he's trying to hold it sort of in a mold but you can still see like hollywood and, and the times are, are still trying to like are yeah. still sort of um i mean this is a terrible uh, no I, i'm with you i like that but you see what analogy. i mean I, I get what you're it's saying that, it's a bit swollen thunderball is obviously uh-huh. like you know with the, the the huge underwater bow which is great but it's but just Young not as tight. Film that either too. No, there you go. Yeah, that's well, true. I wonder if he was maybe just like collecting a paycheck as well. Like, let's just let's just put well, that out can, there. I mean, yeah. he's coming back to do the producers a favor. He doesn't need the film, but I think he still likes it. I mean, he worked very well with Connery. He had the respect of the of the crew and the and the cast. I feel like maybe, it, yeah, the budget. Like we were getting back to the beginning, we were talking about how Thunderball was so much bigger than the others in terms of scope and possibility that maybe he wasn't used to that environment and it was a little yes. uncomfortable. That's why I like what you're saying, Josh uh, Jeff, about this beach ball. You know, because Bond yes. had become inflated. It was growing still. You know, and and here's Terrence Young, a stylist, you know, a director who's very much about feeling and atmosphere, and this thing is starting to get bigger and bigger, and so there's pressure from the production team to spend and spend and make big and make big, and you got this guy who he likes his things tight and small, and that sort of espionage feels. So yeah, I think yeah. there's a there's a contradiction there between director style and and the film's growth, right, and the film's sort of character itself. I feel you, and uh, that's why I was just going to mention something when you the way when you were mentioning that when. He spoke to MI5 talking about, do you vouch for this guy? Um, is that I think it really shows that he's obviously very well spoken and, and he is he's very good at assessing people, which is a, obviously a trait for uh, counterintelligence espionage. And so you can really tell then with the quality of Dr. Noah from Russia with Love, he knows what he wants and he knows how to get it. And... That actually made a lot of sense for, you know, when I watched Russia with Love, uh, I keep giving that example because obviously it's my favorite, so I'm biased, but mm. it does explain his character and it does. Ex- and so th- that 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 little story that you said really kind of reverberated to me, um, uh, just showing that the quality of his work, it's all about how you can assess information and how you can relay the information so mm-hmm. absolutely uh, does that make sense or it makes total sense yeah, yeah. no it, it makes absolutely total sense jeff i was going back to like you mentioned you know in terms of style and everything and we're talking about you know the patience of him as a director and how he has the knowledge of how espionage works look back to it and he kind of get his own knowledge and his own beliefs about things uh yeah. and then and then throw that onto his own technical precision and how he directs his mm-hmm. scenes Go back to Doctor No. Yeah. Go, go to the sequence where Bond drives up to Miss Tarot's uh, place in the yeah. mountains. 
And then you have the car chase, first of all. Then you have the sequence when he arrives at the place and that whole brilliant sequence of Connery just messing with yeah. her head. Yeah, totally. And then getting her yeah. out of the apartment because he knows that someone's going to come to kill him. So he does then the whole elaborate setup. Uh, like, it's perfectly paced. And you would never see that like yeah. in, that, in other Bond films that, that would come later on, like in a Lewis Gilbert film, for yeah. example. Uh, you're not going to see uh, in, in, in like in a Roger Moore film, Roger Moore's Bond uh, basically like go into a bed. So first, turning the music on, mm-hmm. going to the bed, putting pillows in it, and stuff, and then putting the putting the blankets over, sitting in the corner and playing solitaire, waiting for well, the no, no. to show up, and no. then you know put no. the bullets into the bed and then gun the killer down in cold blood. Yeah, like that is quintessential Terrence Young because that's, that's lone the, wolf stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah that insane. wasn't even in, yeah. in the book Doctor No. That was Terrence Young. All of that, I'm sure, with Joanna Harwood and well, I mm. top of that, but just and, to clarify, like that to me is quintessential Terrence Young, James Bond. And if just just to add on that, um, I would say with espionage, whether it, it, it's it's written word like in, in novels and biographies and books or on film, it's it's always a pace is very important with that kind of stuff because one it, it it brings the reader and the viewer in, and so if you have good pacing, it it, it makes it more exciting because you're like okay, so I can see where this is going. Oh, I like uh, some little details, right? Because that's what it is: espionage and, and intelligence gathering counter espionage um, surveillance it's all about the little details so that's why those scenes are so important in those early films is that it's really just showing the audience like look at this like look look at the detail that goes on here this isn't just a guy who like you know he's got a trench coat and a silencer like this is the little it's the little things that makes the difference mm-hmm. yeah. and Absolutely. you do see and, a lot and, of and, those in the first two films. yeah that's and that's why it, look that's at promotion of love like the train the fight scene between grant and uh, bond in the cabin i mean you know terrence young is directing that sequence with bob simmons and stuntman yeah. and all that you know that he's in full control of that like everything they wanted to do in that sequence i mean uh, that the, the, the realism of that sequence, I think, is Terrence Young, in my opinion, as well. Hmm. Well, there's, yeah. ex, there's some great, I mean, you can see all these online. I know Thunderballs.org has got a great production stills gallery. You can check out yes, all sorts of stuff. Their site, we really recommend you check out. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast that you've already been there a time or two and look, <laughs> and look, look at some of the great stuff they've got. But there are some wonderful production shots, you know, not just there. I've, uh, the, the, the Tashin book as well, you know, the James Bond archives. The Tashin book is a wonderful resource too. I'd recommend you check that out. But anyway, where you where you and in these photographs, you can see Terrence Young really working quite physically on the set too. Like he's he's not sort of a stay at home director or hide behind the the camera. He's up there. He's moving the actors' bodies and he he's down in the dirt with them. Particularly interesting, I found it learning about the uh, the work in Doctor No where. Honey Rider comes out of the water. You know, we get that, uh, which is now, of course, uh, it's a, you know, it, it's up there in lore, isn't it? In terms of yeah, Bond, that, lore, botic- yeah. that Botticelli yeah, yeah. Uh, thing, yeah, absolutely. But it's, uh, I, I didn't know this until I, I came across it. That um, uh, <laughs> Young recalls shouting at four beach dwellers while filming Honey Rider's emergence from the water, uh, and he, he shouted at them, "Lie down, you bastards!" <laughs> And they all did lay down. And it turned it turns out it was Ian Fleming, Noel Coward, Stephen Spender, uh. the poet, and Peter Carroll, the critic. Yeah. And that was Ian Fleming's very first time on the set of a Bond film. Oh wow. wow. There's a nugget. Yeah. yeah. I can also picture these four men, you know, like going towards this oh, woman. Boy. Or, well, yeah. Noel Noel Coward would have been there just for the kicks, I guess. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 
Anyway. That's funny. Yeah, so... But yeah, we're, we're dealing... We're, aren't we? We're talking about a guy who's had a lot of experience uh, in life. He's had a lot of experience in the film industry. He's worked with big, powerful stars. He likes spending money. He's a smooth he, he enjoy, operator. He's a smooth operator. He enjoys <laughs> he enjoys giving people a good time. Josh, didn't you mention something uh, when we were doing our Thunderball episode about Luciano Paluzzi? Didn't you say that Terrence Young like gave her away or something like that at, at her yeah, wedding? Yeah, uh, b- basically what happened was her uh, oh, father yes, couldn't man. appear at her wedding, right. so he actually right. flew it, yeah. all the way all the way to New York for the wedding mm-hmm. at the time, so that it took just one day and then went back afterwards just to give her away. Right. So you can just tell how much he meant to like not just to the actor, the crew and the actors, but the female actors in particular. Yeah. So this is this is to me, and he was also apparently very devoted to his wife, you know, who was also who was a writer of, of her own accord. Uh-huh. Uh So it seems to me like I don't even know if this guy was like a ladies' man in the terms of that we use the term yeah. ladies' man. You know, like he wasn't a man whore per se. Per se. <laughs> he was just a very sophisticated, chivalrous, uh, like soldier is, is, is what he was mm-hmm. really if you think about it. well i mean that that is of course well, a romantic view i mean we don't we don't know the guy well enough to well, know yes, his yeah, foibles that's, right that, yeah, but that's, definitely, right. that's but, definitely true but, but i'm not going to speculate you know in, yeah, in a negative oh, yeah. fashion no, no no nor should we nor should we yeah. but we've got uh, we've got stories of you know champagne caviar on sets generosity and one of the things ken adams said to him that i i, I i'm I'm really reflecting on, as I think, a very positive thing from a, a working director's reputation. Ken Adam remembers that he wasn't the type of guy who would get mad at you if you spoke to him at the wrong time. Like he was always up for being interrupted and have a look at this set sketch or have a look at this drawing yeah. or like. And I think that if you really think about any of our work environments, right, it's the people who you can speak to when there's pressure on. And if they've still got time for you and they're not going to chip at you, they're going to say thank you. And they're just going to give you a minute at a time and then get back to it. Like, you know that you're getting them at a bad time, but they're still dealing with you. And I think that I think that idea of um, it's not an egalitarian idea, but the respect shown for everybody on part of the set, you know, regardless of one status, I think is something that he was really good at and he endeared himself to a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, he was a great leader, I think, in, in that respect. And I think that's why, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the films that he made and even Thunderball to that extent, I mean, while it does have its flaws, uh, Dr. No for Marshall of Love, uh, you can see like everyone working together in tandem. And I think it's all because, you know, like he's the he's like the supreme allied commander mm-hmm. over all of these all these players who are working on the Bond films. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm going to throw the film out there and um, you tell me, OK, uh, your favorite thing about it. OK, so sure. your, your favorite Terrence Young touch, if you will. Dr. No. Uh, I, I would point to definitely the reveal of Bond at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but I, I, yeah. I also Actually, really yeah. like the first time when he walks in, we, we see him walk into M's office and how, how just how Terrence Young films like M's office in particular, mm-hmm. because every Bond film basically copies that same kind of mm-hmm. shot all the way through. But, mm-hmm. but, but the slight differences though, is I think it's as like Terrence Young almost pulls back a bit more. I was thinking that's and that whole sequence where like it wasn't Desmond Bellin, but the first Q or whatever armorer as he was called, uh-huh. and how he shows Bond how you know, and then how he slowly goes into a close up showing the guy like talking about how, how the Beretta mm-hmm. is a woman's gun and all this kind of stuff and how he introduced the, oh, the yeah. BBK. Like, <laughs> just that whole sequence is classic yeah. Terrence Young to me. No, I agree with you, man. I think that. Uh... Uh, coming out it's you know it is so iconic and we know that's a tired phrase but uh the the beginning you know the beginning of dr no is is so that's poised right. and gentle was, and interesting i was gonna and say alluring. that too 
Yeah, the, uh, that transition the from three the blind mice thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I really enjoy that because at first you're like, "What's going on here?" Mm-hmm. And then you're like, "Oh, like that." I think as much as like, and that that style has kind of obviously been done now, but obviously contemporary. That was a new. It was very interesting yeah. way of doing things, uh, and I I, re- I really enjoyed that i thought that was really cool was like what are these old jamaican guys like these you know and i was saying oh man yeah, nice you know and they got like yeah. silencers like i mean that's the kind of thing you see like on the opening of like every like cop show nowadays but back in 1962 in these kind of films you wouldn't necessarily see that so that was refreshing in the sense of you again like me when i watch something if it's 50 60 70 years old i can try i try and watch it like I'm watching it for the first time or watching it in that time. Yes. Um, and I, I really appreciated the way that was done. I liked like, Hey, you know, right off the bat, like that's that, 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 that sort of that catches my eye, pun intended kids are blind. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, it's that minutia, it's that minutia too, guys. Like when, uh, think about it, like after the Strangway's assassination and then you go, you go to like, uh, you know, uh, the, the guy at MI6 saying, String, Stringway Secretary hasn't signed in, hasn't uh, signed in yet, right? And it shows all the different aspects of the, I guess, the complex mm-hmm. machine that is MI6, you know, and all its workings. Uh, he shows every little faucet of that, right? It's all those little minutia. Yeah, that's that true. Yeah, he does in, that. In his yeah. film. Uh-huh. And for Marshall Bluff, for example, too, like just in how espionage and spies work. Yeah. But yeah, so any thoughts from Dr. No? Any other sequences that stand out? Uh, I, I really like the the moment that you cited earlier, Josh, yeah. and Terrell's. I, I really like that. I, I feel like the film's uh, less interesting as it continues. I mean, that's how I feel about it, and I understand all of the... The first know, half is great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a great film, but I, I just, I'm less interested. My favorite part, although I'm saying I'm less interested in the second half, is that entire Dr. Nose layer I love that whole that whole stuff. Like, and I know that's a lot of Ken the, Allen there. The but, uh, dinner, yeah, but the direction of that dinner scene is is fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I like Wiseman and Connery playing off each other. I like Connery's physical presence there, and then sort of how he he's kind of controlled back when he's got the champagne bottle in his arm, you know. And then he says, "Well, I prefer the '53 myself." Like, I like I love that right. whole scene. You know, we're we're never yeah. we're never far away from remembering that this guy is a guy who likes to find things in life. You know, I think yes. this Terrence Young touches in there. So much of the magic of that part of the film is Ken Adam. I know, but there's there's a real nice elegance to that that I think yeah, has come from you know, and the supervillain as well being an elegant man. I, I like that too. Now that's not something we got in the Fleming book where um, he was a bit of a poser because he had so much dirty sort of history behind him, you know. But in the yes. film, he's he's more refined in the film. He almost feels more of a victim in the film to me. Yeah, well, he, he explains about how like yeah, how like the Soviets and the Americans they had no use. To, you know, like they they ignored his ideas. He's like. East West just points of the compass as stupid mm-hmm. as the other, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. He he wasn't a fan though. Young wasn't a fan of Monty Norman's music. Um, I'm reading a book by John Berlinum right now called The Music of James Bond. It's a great book. I recommend it to uh, to listeners. It's really fun. It goes through all of the Bond films chapter by chapter and talking about the production of the the score and the soundtrack and the songs to each of the films. Um, yeah, when Young first heard the the you know the demos and stuff for. For the film, he did not like it. He described Young's. Uh, he described the score by Monty Norman as mining disaster music. Wow! And he said that we got to bring somebody else in on this, which is interesting. I, I mean, they they got on okay, but Peter Hunt actually, as editor, he was the one who did more of the collaborations with 
uh, Monty Norman at John mm-hmm. Barry in the early days. But Barry became quite uh, a figure of regard for Young, and he had a big part in making sure that John Barry got the role for um, composer in From Russia With Love because um, they had Lionel Bart lined up, right, to do the songs. And Lionel Bart's Oliver yes. was, was really big at the time. And so they wanted him to do the music. But uh, but Terrence Young was like, no, I think, you know, we've got to give, we owe it, his words were, we owe it to John to give him a chance. And it's funny, yes. it's, it's funny to think that the orchestrations that Barry did on Dr. No could have been all he ever got in terms of contribution to the I know, canon, you because know? basically, like, well, yeah, John Barry was the orchestrator, like, um, but the, the, I guess the conductor, I guess you could say, of the score, yeah, it was yeah. still Monty Norman's music they were using. Yeah, and so he had a, he had an influence there. There's a great section of Berlinum's book that kind of talks about his compliment to Barry's score and From Russia with Love. It is definitely worth reading, but I don't think we need to share that now. Just to say that Young mm. ha- Young did play a part in securing John Barry's role within the Bond universe, and I, I like that little story. It's good. It's nice yeah. because so sure. much of our appreciation comes down to the music too, right? And you yes. Know, and you think about him as the first director. He was creating so much of a series that we, we went on to enjoy the evolution of. Yeah, minus like, you know, the James Bond theme and, you know, underneath the mango tree. I can't really mm-hmm. think of any music in Dr. No that really stood out to me, per se. Like, uh, it had that very kind of like melodramatic, like 50s action movie kind of music. Almost like, yeah, almost, it was almost TV music in a way, in some yeah. in, in a way. <laughs> Well, they have like John John Barry coming in right away and from Russia of Love and I, yeah it's just like amazing yeah well, some something else that uh, Terrence Young hated about the music in that film was something that Broccoli really did want now Cubby Broccoli was insistent that when Connor <laughs> when Connery kills that tarantula you're gonna have that bang bang splash music that kind of goes along with the shoe slapping right or the slipper yeah. hitting and mm-hmm. Terrence Young did not want that in there at all he thought that the whole thing because the test audiences laughed at that and Cubby Broccoli felt that that was a good moment of tension release when the audience kind of had a laugh at that part so basically he thought that was like a slide whistle yeah 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 that's right that, yeah I guess so I guess so that was Terrence Young's slide whistle for Dr. No anyway okay good so, so there's Dr. No I mean our listeners are going to have their own opinions of what was great the casino stuff at the beginning is just fabulous I mean the film is yeah, full of style for much sure with love guys that's uh, that's a toughie, but uh, even the yeah. opening sequence, I think, is this, is the is that that great teaser, you know, where Bond is strangled, quote unquote, by uh, yeah, by Grant. Mm-hmm. That yeah. that's a really I mean, good setup. Uh, I just like you know the whole thing of like Tanya leaving the embassy and then going to the office, and then she's recruited by Cleb, right? Yeah, that's like, a that's wonderful whole, scene. That's that a whole good sequence. Scene. I mean, and you got you got to think about it too. Like Young makes that scene really good when it could have been really bad. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Daniel Bianchi. Basically, yeah, mm-hmm. he, uh, who basically didn't have much of an acting career before, and experienced one hundred percent. And then up, up then Lottie Lenya, she was more of a singer, more of a singer, actually. yeah. And it was actually Terrence Young that got her for the role. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And she was fantastic in the role. Jeff, what about oh, what, what do you? Uh, like? Well, I was gonna say that's him, but obviously, you know the 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 train fight mm-hmm. um yeah josh and, mentioned that a few moments ago yeah, sorry yeah I, no that, no you're right that's the, uh saint sophia mosque saint sophia mosque was also well I, I was gonna also i i enjoyed the um uh the I, I, I'm, I'm i'm gonna say catacombs but it's not the right word but the under the tunnels yes, i really that's enjoyed awesome. that yeah. too underneath yes, how the he, stumble 
just yeah, showing the expanse cool. of it with the camera yeah. how he but that's that too. good espionage as well right like that that's again a touch of uh, of realism you feel like that's something that could have yeah. could have been real there even like for example i know scott wasn't a huge fan of that particular sequence but how it was directed you can't deny uh the brilliance of how young was able to use all these different elements going on all at once in that gypsy camp mm-hmm. ba- uh, battle mm-hmm. oh yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, was, I wasn't a huge fan of that. So. I liked it, but it, it, I mean, it would have been that would have been definitely a hard thing to direct. So, yes, yes. Uh, as a, you know, I tell you what I like, just, guys, yes. I like cars. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. So it's so fine. It's fine. I, I just um, I like the escape from the train. You know, I, I like that whole uh, taking Grant's escape route. I love the way that yeah. plays out. Yeah. I, lo- I love, but even right down to the details of the colors in it, you know, I, I love the flower truck and I love Connery. Yeah, I love Connery sure. knocking the guy out, putting the cap on and hopping on that, that boat. Like I love that entire stretch. Oh, until yeah. I get to Venice. Fantastic. I think it's just awesome. It yeah, is. That, that, that's, that's, that's a fantastic sequence. I also love the sequence in Russia about commercial about two, where Bond shows up at the Soviet embassy and just the tension's already there, right? Yeah, yeah. And then it's like, yeah. I that that is a really good scene. I really like that. It's scene like too. I'm sorry. Uh, what, what what is that clock correct? Right? And it's like Russian clocks are always correct or something yeah. like that, right? <laughs> and then and then boy, oh man, so good. Yeah. And then just how he and, and then how Young shows all the parts of the operation going into play too. How he directs it and directs editor mm-hmm. to cut it in the way that they need to. In terms of like how the uh, Bond going down the stairs into where the uh, lectern is and then showing the firemen like showing up at the, at the scene with all the crowds and extras they had at the time like yeah uh, just brilliantly put together brilliant mm. well what about thunderball now uh, i mean one of my favorite parts of thunderball is the casino i think that's one of the best casino scenes in the entire in the entire and franchise. it's also a very terrence young scene too. yeah very much so it's connery's best moment you know in a in a, in a dinner suit i think and yep. it's um that's that's how I feel anyway. But uh, you know, outside of that scene, the thing that I like Thunderball for the most is its style. It is a really stylish film. And yes. if I'm if I'm gonna ask if I'm asked to watch a film, that's what twenty. But what did we say, guys? Did we say twenty seven minutes of underwater footage? Did we say yeah, that? Yes. Something, like that. Yeah, Some, yeah. something like that? Whatever it is. Yeah. But if if we're gonna watch that much, then what's happening above the water needs to be really stand out. And the, you know the colors of the clothes, you know the, the the pink shirts, the blue shorts, like everything that's in. Or the, I don't know if there's blue shorts, but there's definitely blue yes. shirts. The patterns, Felix Leiter's involvement, all of that style that goes along with the film being in Nassau. I love the way that film looks, and I can't help yes. but feel like this is the jet set that Terrence Young loved. You know, I, I yeah, I can definitely feel yes. that. He might have almost like fell in love with his own aesthetic and his own. Uh, the visuals of the movie itself, you know, and that could be another reason why it feels bloated because you have someone trying to make a Goldfinger film for yeah, the studio, that's right, but also trying to make his own movie at the same time. Yeah, I so think maybe right. those two mm. things just didn't yeah. uh, mesh. You know what I mean? And that's where you find the He's... Terrence Young touches. I think is in the clothing and the the finesse of, the, well, of Thunder. That's what it is. Is that it? Okay. It's. It looks immaculate. Like it looks like it. Like you're saying, it looks like a Terrence Young. It's got all the. You know all the little the little pieces like the clothing um, and and the style and and just the way it's shot uh, and but then you also have the other aspects of of the current films trying to make it like the underwater battle and just trying to make it a, a bigger film but it has all those elements that are Terrence Young that make it so so pretty <laughs> if you will. I don't well, know, let me ask pretty. let me ask you then, guys. 
I mean, post Young, okay, and all of the other Bond films that follow, the 22 or the 20 or however many we've got after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there'll be 20 others after that. Is this the prettiest that Bond gets? Like, does does that aspect of Bond carry on properly? Or or do all the other films some have have a roughness, have a a different feel to them? Do we ever get that sort of that sort of uh, balance between the the eloquent diner, the the clothes man, the action? Like, do we get it properly in a nice formula or in a nice ingredient mix, or or is it kind of all rough after this? Not all. Well, that, I mean, Daniel rougher. Craig is uh, like there's some pretty. Uh, pretty nice looking scenes with him and obviously some of the casino scenes in the night and the car and the driving scenes and stuff like that but i would say you're probably right i think it is probably i think and i was gonna say like uh under majesty's secret services uh got some really nice scenes too but Mm -hmm. i would say yes i think you're probably correct on this that i think after Thunderball, I think it it kind of maybe plateaus a bit for that, or changes. I, also, I mean, it changes its focus. Bond. Well, it changes its focus. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. I know. It's... I know we're going to do Hamilton at some point, uh, and I have to point out with Guy Hamilton is yeah. is that Goldfinger, while it is a Guy Hamilton film, I'm sure in some way the studio and even Hamilton were trying to get that Terrence Young yeah. for yeah, yeah. that movie. Yeah, and I find sure. that like, Hamilton, when he's on his own, like years later, doing Diamonds Are Forever and. The man with and the man with the live and let die and the man with the golden gun. Right, you think that's I think more those him. were more Guy Hamilton more so yeah. than it was Fair trying point. to emulate Terrence Young. But mm-hmm. I will say that I think that I think both Martin Campbell and Sam Mendes are with Terrence Young the most visually stunning Bond. Yeah, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. That's I uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. Yeah. Well, we'll see, we'll see how you know when we get through all of these little little uh, vignettes. We'll see how we feel about that. So, guys, any closing remarks on about Terrence Young, about the legacy of his films? Josh, you said a big thing a few minutes ago. You said uh, a few minutes ago, but an hour ago, Josh, you said that <laughs> Terrence Young was your favorite Bond director. Is That's that, right. I mean, are you are you you holding to that? Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, I know OHMSS is my favorite Bond mm-hmm. film, but From Rush of Love is my second. It's no, sorry, I'm going back to my own thing. I know Goldfinger is my favorite Bond film, but that to me, as I mentioned, uh, Guy Hamilton is taking Terrence Young's style. And putting his own little, a tiny little spin of his own on it. And as I mentioned down the road, you know, Hamilton's style is a little different than when it wasn't Goldfinger, in my opinion. Right. So I, I just think, yeah, I think, yeah, even though like I might like some of the movies by other Bond directors more so than the Doctor No and Thunderball, yeah. I still think that like visually, like if every Bond film could look like a Terrence Young movie, I it would be be, be fantastic. I know that's not the case, yeah. but I think we still got that great trilogy. You know, those first yeah. four movies. I think are just classic Bond, and that to me, it, it almost peaked at that point. So this isn't a this isn't yeah. a case of he's first, therefore he's best. Like th- this is this is you really liking Connery, really liking the visual style, liking the refinements that Young brought to the films and to the that, character. Absolutely, I think the character would be uh, bereft without them. And as Jeff said, I don't even know if it would be as successful without mm-hmm. this without these touches. As I said, lightning in a bottle. There are things that occur. There's there's events that occur or coincidences yeah. that align somehow. The stars align in a certain way, and and then some, we get some perfect creation or almost perfect creation anyway. Yeah, cool, Jeff. Well, with Terrence Young, it's just uh, I I think it kind of paved the road for the quality mm-hmm. and the style, which. Um, you know, I'm I'm very happy about, and so it's just nice to see like someone like uh, Terrence Young was able to to make that product, and uh, I guess 
in, in closing for me, uh, I'd say he's probably my favorite director just because of how much I appreciate the early Bond films and how they, you know, sort of ignite the spark that is James Bond and his cigarette <laughs> and, and, and as a series. So, yeah, I guess I guess I could say he's probably my favorite director in that sense and just the style that he brought and just uh, looks, especially from how we've sort of extrapolated on his character and his person and, and uh, who he was. Yeah, uh, it's that very, we did that. very it's good. Yeah, um, yeah. I think, and I think we did it just sounding juvenile. He sounds a bit of a badass, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, but I'm glad that we were able to. Uh, I think we did. I think this episode did him justice. I'd like to yeah. hear what uh, our our listeners um, want to know about our opinions on this. I'd like to see a couple of hits on our various social media. Yeah, yeah. Let us know what you so think you about guys... Terrence Young or uh, Jeff's what opinion earlier experience? about the Tiger King. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Your favorite Jungian moments. <laughs> no, for sure. That, that's a that's yeah. a great conversation to get going. Um, what what parts of these Terrence Young films do you like the most? Yeah. And just uh, before we leave, guys, uh, a reminder to uh, bring in get those stories sent in. We mentioned at the outset, you know, the more uh, listener uh, Bond origin stories that you've got, you know, uh, the better for our upcoming show. So that would be awesome. Get in touch with us at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com or hit us up on uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. That's right. It would be good to see and to hear because there are so many Bond directors out there. And, and you can, you can, you know, you can fall into that that trap of, well, he was the first, therefore he's the best. But um, in, in, it's, not, would, necessarily, it's yeah. not necessarily the case, right? I mean, I think we all know that... Um, you you have to have the right things in place in order for something to succeed. So well done to the producers for giving him a chance. You know, there are other cards on the table when Terrence Young was selected to do this. So I think they made the right choice, a guy who had style yeah. and who had a, a confidence in working with people. And I think that was, uh, it was good. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we I, I think, he, yeah, with, as you said, those cards on the table and with him on, and when you've add him to, to, you know, to the hand, you know, you get that Royal flush. There you go. Right. Well, hey, I mean, I couldn't have said it any better. So let's. Yeah. Uh, I didn't let's... have a Baccarat illusion, but uh, I was going to say, I, how's I he going to get to Baccarat? Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think we'll take Royal Flush and, and leave it at that. But thanks everybody for tuning in and listening, and we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, stay as... safe and yeah, stay uh, an appropriate and distance, uh, yes. an appropriate distance apart. Yep. We're definitely social distancing. <laughs> we are considering yeah. Scott is across an ocean. Uh, <laughs> yes, and, so we got uh, that covered at least. Ocean across yeah. town. So yeah, we yeah. got that. <laughs> cross city, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. cross city. Cross All right, gents, this has been great fun. We'll uh, we'll meet up again soon. And uh, what we've got coming up next, just a little tease for our listeners, we've got a what if episode, and we'll sure. release a little bit more about that on the socials in the the days ahead but uh, yeah exciting stuff yeah, yeah. get those uh, get those stories into us via email or message and we'll uh, we'll get them set up for our show later next month right guys it's been great fun thank you and uh, we'll see you again soon take it easy Hasta ciao